I'm Chris Sheets, and I'm your host for the Celebrity Podcast, where we sit down with celebrities from the worlds of music, sports, TV, and movies to hear their stories about the pets they love. He was in Harper's arms the entire afternoon, just hanging out, eating all the, you know, the hors d'oeuvres and stuff like that. How cool is this? Charlie doesn't even realize he's in the Prime Minister's arms. The Celebrity Podcast, available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Wednesday, January 8th. We begin with an update on the conflict between the United States and Iran. We get the latest from Dennis Horak, Canada's former ambassador to Saudi Arabia. Next, we speak with an Australian researcher who is bringing his latest work to trial, an Alzheimer vaccine, which is showing some promising results. And finally, it's a trip back in time. We take a tour of a legendary Calgary landmark rib tour ahead of its closure at the end of this month. 811 now, a Ukrainian passenger jet carrying 176 people crashing early this morning, minutes after taking off from the Iranian capital's main airport. All aboard were killed, including 63 Canadians. Joining us this morning with more information, Chief Political Correspondent for Global National, David Aiken. Good morning, David. Good morning, guys. Yeah, busy morning here in Ottawa. It sure is. Yeah, I mean, you've got a a shooting going on in Ottawa itself, and that's not even really making the top news stories because this plane crash has just been so devastating for us here in Canada and especially here in Alberta. That's right, and we don't know a great deal about the victims at this point in time, 63 Canadians, as you mentioned. Uh, There are a lot of uh, Canadian, Iranian Canadians, who might go to Iran. It's a holy site for many Shia Muslims. And you think how many people travel over the Christmas break around this time of year. Uh, I've talked to some uh, friends of mine who have friends who know people who are on the the plane. Uh, That's possibly one of the reasons there were so many Canadians on this flight. The carrier is uh, Ukraine International Airlines, and it flies a direct flight from Tehran to Kiev, the Ukrainian capital. That was this flight in particular. And then there's some direct flights from Kiev to Toronto. And those are pretty economically-based flights. So if you are traveling from Iran, uh, from Tehran to Toronto, uh, Ukraine International is a, is a good bargain flight. Again, another reason a lot of Canadians are on this flight. There may have also been a lot of Canadians on this flight because, of course, uh, our government and Western governments have been saying because of the inflamed tensions between Iran and the United States, maybe it's not the best time to be in the region. If you don't have to be in the region, our government has been saying, and you can use commercial air travel to get yourself out, um, people do so. So that may be another reason. Might have had NGO workers, uh, business workers, oil field workers in the region who were uh, deciding that now is the time to get out of Iran. Should point out that no one at this point, including Iranian officials, are linking the Iranian uh, targeting of U.S. airfields last night with ballistic missiles to this crash. Two separate incidents is what we have. But again, lots of questions still out there. Iran saying that if it finds the black box, and it's uh, 10 Eastern hour, just after 10 Eastern, if Iran finds the black box, it is not going to give it up. It's going to keep the black box and uh, commit to an investigation. So that's an interesting wrinkle. And then, of course, this plane is made by Boeing. Of course, that's the big American manufacturer. Boeing officials would normally be traveling to a crash site of their planes. But in this case, that's complicated because of American-Iran complications. Canada's response at this time, what we expect to hear more today, our Transport Minister Mark Garneau offering technical assistance to whatever we can do there, and our Foreign Affairs Minister uh, uh, Francois-Philippe Champagne, uh, just a tweet so far from him saying he's been in contact with the government of Ukraine. But uh, other than that, we have not heard much from uh, the Canadian government. 
Now, David, there was uh, some speculation that the uh, Ukraine airline itself had said uh, that it was attributed to mechanical issues last night, and then uh, r- rumors that that was rescinded. What are what are we hearing from the airline itself at this point? You're right. Very shortly after the the crash, uh, the Ukraine airline sort of attributed this to mechanical failure and then deleted that statement. Now, the Iranians, who have been on the scene and are, uh, of course, investigating, they too, according to news agency news agents uh, in Iran. I suggested there may have been a fire in one of the engines, that the, pl- that the pilot may not have been able to control the plane, or at least might have been controlled it enough that he was able to divert the plane's path away from a residential area near Tehran and into uh, a farmer's field where it crashed. But again, there is no official confirmation on that. Uh, everybody's trying to figure out uh, what happened. It's certainly the plane uh, was going on a what, two, three-hour flight uh, to Kiev. That's about 2,300 kilometers. And it would have been completely fueled up for that flight. So any crash would certainly have produced a significant uh, flames and, and fireballs. In fact, there's some witnesses with some uh, video that's ended up on social posts that show a big fireball. And that would certainly be attributable to the fact that, uh, you know, it just been gassed up for the long flight. We do, uh, David, ha- have been hearing reports of 27 Iranian Edmontonians that may have been killed in this crash. But just again to reiterate, there's nothing yet from our prime minister or from Ottawa at this point as to a press conference with further information on what the next steps might be. Uh, other than that, they hope to have something for us later today. And uh, that would be, I think, a good thing because I think there's uh, you know, people in Edmonton, people in Toronto, where there's another big center of Iranian Canadians. Uh, they're very keen to, to hear what happened. And, uh, and and to find out what's going on. So, uh, knock on wood, we're going to hear something uh, as, as soon as possible. I mean, it's, it's all made a little more complicated because of the Iran-U.S. thing. President Trump is to speak at 11 a.m. Eastern, and then we may hear some additional information from the Canadian side about that and then about the crash. So it is a, a very rare and unique situation that we have this missile strike, and then we have a plane crash, mm-hmm. uh, and that, I think, is complicating matters. Obviously a developing uh, situation, which we're going to be hearing more about, I'm sure, in the coming hours and days. Thank you for your time, David. No problem. Cheers. David Aiken, Chief Political Correspondent, Global National. Before yesterday's missile strike, Dennis Horak, Canada's former ambassador to Saudi Arabia and to Iran, uh, put in an article that the events in Iraq this past week look very much like the familiar pattern we've grown accustomed to over past years. Attacks, threats, counter threats exchanged between Iran and the U.S., followed by a period of calm once both sides had sufficiently flexed their muscles. Dennis Horak joins us this morning. Hi, Dennis. Hi, how are you? Great. Thanks so much for joining us. So is that what we're seeing here? Is this a, just a flexing of muscle and a, a counterattack by Iran after what the U.S. did? Or do you think there's more to come? Well, at the moment, it seems that that's where we are at, at this stage. And that's a good thing that, uh, that you know, we may be at a de-escalation point. Whether, and, and the Iranians have apparently said that, you know, unless the Americans retaliate again, that that's it. Uh, it may be that's it for now. There, we may see a resumption of, of sort of smaller scale uh, initiatives or effort, efforts by Iranian militia, Iranian-backed militias, sorry, in Iraq. Uh, there has been some reports I've seen that some of those militias are saying, well, you know what, we haven't avenged the death of our leaders. So we may see some smaller scale things like that. And, and again, I think it will depend on on whether American casualties ensue, because I think that's the red line that Trump drew uh, with the attack on Soleimani. That you know they had this had been in response to a killing of a of a U.S. contractor and also the attack on the U.S. embassy. So 
we'll see where we go, but I think we, you know, it's, it, it is time to take a, a, a relief breath, if you will. We're still waiting for a press conference from President Donald Trump. Uh, what sorts of uh, things do you think his advisors are uh, telling him right now ahead of this press conference? Well, hopefully they're saying to, you know, cool down the rhetoric that say, okay, you know, this has happened, uh, you know, we need to, you know, have the situation calm down a bit, and that there isn't any sort of triumphalism. You know, we don't want to hear things like, you know, is that all you've got, and, you know, this was nothing, and, you know, we've proved correct that our, our policy of, of drawing this red line has frightened the Iranians, things like that that could sort of provoke them. Uh, that may be his tendency, and hopefully his advisors are saying that's probably not the best approach. What are the dangers for Canadian troops that are overseas right now? And and what will our our role as Canada, as a country, be? Well, the troops, most of them have been moved out to Kuwait, which is relatively safer. Uh, There are still some, I understand, in the base, but they would fall under U.S. force protection protocols and things. So uh, they would be in as much danger, perhaps, as American ones, perhaps less, depending on the bases where they're at where they remain. Um, So I think things are are, are relatively calm uh, on that front at this point. Over the longer term, if some of these Iraqi militias start to to, uh, resume the attacks, and there had been many attacks on various Iraqi bases around where Americans were based, um, you know, that could put them at risk as well. In terms of what Canada can do, we're really not, uh, not uh, players in this uh, in any in, in anywhere. This is sort of a, a, a different game for us, a different level than where we're at. Um, we have no embassy in Iran. Uh, we have no ambassador in Saudi Arabia. So even dealing with some of the key players in there, we're we're either blind or we're we have a hand tied behind our back. So not that we would be key influential players in any case. The one the one real risk, and that seems to be less now, given the the fact that that things seem to be quieting for the moment is that were this to turn into a larger regional conflict if saudi arabia dubai uh qatar various other places around the gulf uh, were attacked and as, as a response of a in, in response to a, a tit for tat with the americans as, as the iranians were threatening last night that would create challenges for canada because we've got tens of thousands of canadians that live in the region so and the interesting uh, uh, point to this when it comes to the countries we're talking about, obviously these attacks on the bases within Iraq, but Iraq is, itself is in a, a weird position, having just kind of uh, cleared out the ISIS uh, issue, if you will, and now they're kind of in the middle here, right between uh, uh, hosting uh, some of these U.S. bases and uh, keeping Iran uh, at bay. Well, that's that's right, and also there are they they have the the government has a strong relationship with Iran. There's a lot of Iranian influence within uh, Iraqi government circles. But yeah, you're right. Uh, Iraq is sort of caught in the middle of this, and there's a lot of pressure. There had been pressure uh, prior, but certainly it it, it it ramped up after the uh, the killing of Soleimani that uh, the American troops should leave Iraq. And so we saw a resolution passed in the Iraqi parliament, which is not binding, to have the Americans leave. Um, I'm not sure. I've seen conflicting reports on whether there were Iraqi casualties last night, but if there were, that would, again, sort of ramp up this pressure. You know, Iraq is, you know, this has got nothing to do with us. We're in the middle of this sort of thing. So there may be additional pressure uh, to for the, to get the Americans out as we go forward. Um, and, you know, we'll see where that goes. That's, that would actually be a long-term objective of the Iranians in any case to get the Americans out of Iraq. So uh, we'll see where all that leads. But yeah, the and, and you know, the Iraqi, the average Iraqi, I think, is, is basically just saying, look, this has got nothing to do with us. We've got Iraqis that are dying, and, and you know, what is the point of all of this?
And in fact, reports say Iraq gave the U.S. advance warning that the missile strikes were coming. Now, we're also seeing reports that there are no U.S. casualties and that that was very intentional on Iran's part, that they actually sent the missiles in but avoided areas where the U.S. military was. That seems to be the case, and that, that, that was prudent on their part. I think they realized that were there to be American casualties, there would have absolutely been an American response, a harsh response. That was the message, certainly, that Trump had with the killing of Soleimani, and certainly a message, I think, that, that had been conveyed to the Iranians. And they, the Iranians didn't want war. They didn't want a massive escalation here. They needed to respond in some way, but I don't think they wanted this thing to start spinning out of control. So, so giving the warning, hitting places where there weren't Americans, hitting parts of the base where there weren't Americans was prudent because... Uh, again, they didn't want this spitting out of control. So they've made their point, hopefully, and then they can now we can sort of move forward back to where we were before. So hopefully that's that's where we are now. You know, you hear that uh, Iran has a couple of huge allies in Russia and China. Haven't heard too much. Uh, what uh, At what point would we hear anything from Russia and China uh, involving this incident and, and what's going on at the present day? Yeah, I mean, we heard something initially with the killing of Soleimani. They were sort of saying that, you know, this is not acceptable, that sort of thing. And, and I think it, it's, it's probably going too far to say that they that Russia and China are allies of uh, of Iran. Iran doesn't really have firm allies. They had they had an alliance of, of convenience in Syria, Russia, and and uh, Iran did because they, they 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 were both aiming at the same objective, i.e., keeping uh, Al Assad back, in, keeping Assad in power in, in Damascus, but. You know, um, Russia and China, this is as, as much to do with their rivalry and, and, and uh, with the United States and, and the relationship with the United States. And if the United States gets bogged down in the Middle East or gets embarrassed in the Middle East, that's that's great. So uh, I, I wouldn't see, for example, Russia or China coming to Iran's defense in any sort of uh, a conflict that did erupt with the United States. Well, we're hearing that Donald Trump will speak at 11 o'clock this morning, so we'll be keeping an eye on that and uh, the heightened tensions in that area. Thanks for joining us, Dennis. Appreciate your your uh, outlook on all of this. My pleasure. Dennis Horak is the former Canadian ambassador to Saudi Arabia and former head of mission charge d'affaires in Iran. 8.42 on the morning news. Alzheimer's and dementia are well-known afflictions, but Professor Nikolai Petrovsky of Flinders University in Australia has led groundbreaking research on a vaccine he's hoping may prevent dementia and Alzheimer's. He joins us this morning. Uh, good morning, Professor Prov- uh, Petrovsky. Uh, first question is, uh, what makes this vaccine unique? Well, what makes it unique is hopefully it will work. Um, you know, the, the idea behind vaccines for Alzheimer's disease actually stretches back more than 20 years. But unfortunately, for one reason or another, they haven't worked. We're hoping that we've addressed all of the deficiencies in the previous generations of vaccine and finally got one that's strong enough to actually uh, have an impact. Professor, do we know enough about what causes Alzheimer's and dementia to be able to come up with a vaccine? It's a good question. Um, And the answer is we can never know too much. And and the nature of medical science is that, you know, we we have to keep um, taking the information we know and and making leaps of faith. Um, But uh, if, if things don't work out, it turns out, you know, uh, we don't know enough. We have to go back to the drawing board and 
do more research into what's actually causing the disease. So, so we we know a lot more than we used to, but but there's still a lot more we don't know. Uh, but we're hoping that we're able to use what information we do have um, to to design an effective treatment. But of course, we won't know until till we actually test this in humans, which is the the next step. Uh, hopefully, in the next year or two. Let's talk about the process and, and your work. You put all this work in. You hope for the best. You think you've got the formula right. How long does it take to, 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 to go through that whole process that it could be offered up to the, the general public? Unfortunately, an awfully long time. I think most people don't appreciate that a, a typical new drug that comes on the market typically has 15 to 20 years of development uh, preceding that. And... Um, and and so the reason for that is one, um, you know, there there are a lot of steps you have to take, uh, both in doing the science, uh, testing it in in different animal models, and then even when you get to humans, uh, you know, we need to make sure it's it's effective, but also that it's safe. And mm-hmm. and typically that process takes five to ten years of of actually doing clinical trials before you're allowed to actually release a drug to market so so even even when we say now we're about to start human trials it could still be five to ten years before that vaccine is is on the market providing it's it's proved to be effective and safe during that process well professor going back to you know yes we know quite a bit now these days about alzheimer's dementia but as you said there's still a lot we don't know so what would this vaccine target how would that work if you can kind of lay that out in in layman's terms for us so what we've known for a long time is is if you um, look at a brain of someone who's died from Alzheimer's disease, uh, there are these clumps of abnormal proteins that have built up over time and have blocked the communication between the nerve cells and in some cases have actually killed the nerve cells. Um, so, so we know that these abnormal clumps of protein are there uh, we believe that they play a role in the development of the memory loss. And in fact, our vaccine is designed to induce antibodies that go in, bind to these abnormal clumps of protein and actually take them out of the brain. So we're hoping by, by removing those clumps, we can reverse the process. But of course, as I say, the proof is in the pudding. It works in, in the animal models that, that get a similar disease, but but until we test in the humans, we can't be certain it will have the same effect. Well, we'll cross our fingers mm-hmm. that it does have the same effect. Thank you for your time this morning, Professor. My pleasure. Professor Nikolai Petrovsky, the Director of the Department of Diabetes and Endocrinology at Flinders. Sue and Andrew down in the old part of Inglewood. We're at the Ribtor Warehouse with Joel Lipkind, who is the owner of Ribtor. And Joel, you know, this is just, it's, it's a little bit of history walking into this building, isn't it? How long have you been in this location and a little bit of history about your original place downtown? Okay, well, I'll start with the original place because that was on uh, 605 2nd Street Southeast which was across the street from in those days in the 50s was a, was a department store called Nagler's Department Store, which became the library, which is the old library, of mm-hmm. course. Our building, we got, uh, my dad uh, got uh, expropriated by Rod Sykes' crew back in the 1969-70. 
We then moved to the Massey-Ferguson building on 11th Street, 11th Avenue and 3rd Street Southeast in 1971. And we shut down, I shut down the retail at the end of 20, 2008. So we've been operating out of here since then. Joel, I remember the early 80s going with my parents when I was about 10 years old, and I didn't realize how unique Ribtor was. We'd go down there, my dad would kick around, maybe be there with my grandpa. Uh, but I couldn't describe it back then, but as I'm older now, a few years older than 10, <laughs> I know how unique the store was. So how do you describe it, and how did you describe the retail outlet on 11th Avenue as to what you sold? Because there was really something for everyone. Well, we, we sold primarily hardware, not building supplies per se. Uh, like not wood, but regular hardwood, including the nuts, bolts, and nails. And we sold camping, fishing, and at one time hunting supplies as well. But we were kind of, and we had these three floors of stuff upstairs, which is a lot of this stuff. And we were just known as, if you couldn't find it anywhere, you came to Ribtor. Mm -hmm. And what does it feel like to be really an iconic piece of Calgary history? Well, I've, I've always appreciated Not you, but the store. Yeah, I always, <laughs> yeah, always appreciate it because when, when I was a kid, I mean, it was the Hutterites were one of the main customers of ours back in the 50s and 60s so that grew up with the community around Calgary. And it, it's, yeah, it's a historical place, and, but all things come to an end, and it's, uh, I'm getting older. My, my staff is who I, we have here today are. Uh, from the original store, or from the 11th Avenue store, and uh, they want to retire. You know, there's really nobody to take it on, per se, because it's, it's old stuff. Okay, so before you were in, in the Riptor building, as we now know it, it is Calgary history on 11th. The past 10 or 12 years in the warehouse location, tell us about how that operation ran it, and who were your customers at that point? Okay, so the last number of years, I haven't advertised at all, okay? Uh, my two guys here, Keith and Howard, they ran it, and it was mostly by, by word of mouth and some of our old customers who liked old stuff. Mm -hmm. But uh, and so we did. We didn't, you know, we didn't. We weren't making money at it, and that's not the reason we're closing down. It's just because it's time. Is it? Is this been a labor of love for you then? I mean, you know, you've got lots of people in here now, sort of milling about, picking through what's left before you close the doors at the end of this month. So, has this been? You know, is this? Does it, does it hurt your heart to to think that you're actually leaving, or are you happy with what you've done? Well, you know, to some respects, I'm going to miss it and just with some of the stuff that's here. But it's just time. You mentioned you and your staff. So many different items in this warehouse, and there was also in the Riptor, the original location. you got to know your stuff, because if I come in looking for something odd, we depend on you because you don't know where to look even. Yeah, well, these guys, uh, so Keith, who retired a year and a half ago, but he's here helping me today. He was with us over 50 years. Wow. With the, you know, the store, he, he was a hardware manager. Howard, who's behind the till right now, he's been running it for the last by himself for the last couple of years since Keith retired. Uh, but they just, they know the stuff. Keith's got a fa fabulous memory. He remembers when everything came in. Because <laughs> my dad used to buy a lot of stuff from Crown Surplus, which was the Canadian Forces way of getting rid of stuff. Mm -hmm. Any stories that kind of stick in your mind of maybe things that, you know, people were looking for and you're like, ha I have it. This is Rib Tour. We've got it here. Well, I, I the, 
the person really should ask is Keith, <laughs> to be quite honest with you, because he used to have a re reputation, and I think this, the Calgary Sun at one time many years ago named him Mr. Find It. Okay, what surprised you that you brought into Riptor and it sold? Did you, you Something that came in, you said, we won't sell something like that, and you end up selling it. I guess offhand, I would say from my dad's point of view, he bought in, one, at one time he bought from Crown Assets spring bunk beds. Okay. From the army, you know, the old like primary color, yeah, barracks mm -hmm. style with just springs and you know, metal. And he had a whole Quonset hut, 100 foot Quonset hut full of those. Now, we, you know, we ended up with some bits and pieces at the end, but we've got nothing now. <laughs> nothing. And it you know, took a few years. He would buy stuff, and uh, eventually somebody would say, Oh, I need something like that. Is there anything you'll miss, do you think? Or are you happy that, you know, you've, you've done such an amazing job and been such a great part of the history of this city, but it's just time to shut her down? Or what, what, do you think you'll miss it? Are you going to be bored being retired? Well, I'm not retired. I've got some other <laughs> businesses that I, I'm doing. You know, people ask me that after we shut down the retail location, where I was there every day. And they say, what do you miss about that? And I said, what I missed was customers. It was always fun talking to the customers mm -hmm. and finding, like you say, finding stuff or helping them out. Last day is January 31st, is that right? 31st, or uh, I'm not sure if that's a Friday or a Saturday, or if, it, if it's a Friday, we'll make it the 1st of February, you know, that sort of thing, but it'll be, that'll be it for the public, yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure, you know, coming down here and seeing the warehouse, but being able to be at the old shop, the original one in the downtown, it really is, you know, a piece of history for this city and anybody who's lived here. Any final words for the folks who might be listening? Uh, well, come and see us and say goodbye. <laughs> and I've had quite a few people come back and say, you know, I've, I've been here, I was here with my, my dad, uh, sad to see you go, which is nice, really nice to hear. Joel Lipkin of Rib Tour, right through 2713 16th Street in the city southeast, 16th Street Southeast. Right. you got to find it. It's in Inglewood, in old Inglewood, yeah. right through till the end of the month. Tough to find a little bit, right? It's tough to find, but once you find it, uh, it's clear that it's a warehouse, that's for sure. Yeah, it's on the east side of Blackfoot Trail, so your Google yeah. Maps may take you on a little bit of a spin around, but it's a really neat. You, just, you really need to go in there just to see the stuff they have. It is Honestly, it looks like your garage, if you'd, uh, you know, uh, been a bit of Never a... Never cleaned it out that's ever. That's what I was getting at. Yeah. Uh, but if you want to find something unique, if you want to find a keepsake, or literally, uh, we had folks who were walking around saying, these bolts that I'm holding in this little box, they don't make them anymore. They had aircraft they, carrier bolts. Yeah. And then and the rivets. Origi yeah. Just... They uh, had cups and saucers. Really neat stuff. There were, there were a couple of people down there. There was a... I'm sure she was a designer because the things she was picking up, I was like, wow, that you even spotted that? Yeah. And then just... So she had her husband there sitting with this mound of stuff that was piled into a shopping cart and it really neat... Th just like little oil cans, cool stuff that you just look at and go, oh, how come I didn't see that? Didn't yeah. notice it. But <laughs> the, the little findables there are really cool and you only have till the end of the month. And give yourself time to look around because yes. there's so much to look at. Oof.